the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flash over substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamline, news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Dersham and I really had to weed through the headlines this week. There were so many of them, so many hot stories to try to bring you some headlines that maybe have a silver lining. With that said, we are going to start with a heartbreaker. And this is a case that really touches the heart of any, and you don't even have to be a parent, but definitely for parents in the process of trying to have children especially. So this has a case of um, mixed up embryos. This is one of those very high profile cases in terms of facts that had to do with a couple that was trying to get pregnant, actually two couples, one that was trying to get pregnant for years and then finally was impregnated uh, by artificial insemination only to then give birth to another couple's child. Now, if I were to just say, you know, let that sink in, that would probably take a while to sink in because you'd probably say, wait a minute, what? Um, Larry, that no doubt was your reaction when I first told you I was going to be talking about this story, was it not? It's an amazing story, actually. And it was interesting. This happened, I think the birth happened in September of this year. And some of their friends, and probably, yeah, probably, oh, it was 2019. You're right. Some of their friends and relatives were saying, hey, you know, you might want to get tested. Uh, that baby does not look like you. It was a different race and so forth. And so eventually she went in for a DNA test and was totally surprised, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, a, a couple of things that really uh, set this story apart First of all, we're not talking about mixing up coffee orders at Starbucks. This is mixing up embryos. This is life. Secondly, all the mothers out there know that one of the most precious times in life is carrying a child. It is such a bonding experience, looking on the the monitor, uh, looking at at watching it grow, feeling it grow, feeling your, your child kicking, giving birth, bonding, raising a child. But you're right. This child was not the same race as the parents. Now, right away, you might think, oh, huge red flag, a lot of problems. But these parents tried to rationalize it and think it through, you know, just like any other parents. Well, you know, was there maybe a distant relative? Many of us have had the experience of sometimes you have kids that look a little different than you do. But these parents said that when they saw their newborn, they didn't recognize her. Now, Larry, let me fast forward several months when you're right. The other people and friends and family were saying, do you think it's time for a DNA test? I mean, you said it's not a donated egg. So how do you explain uh, to Caucasian parents having a baby that is clearly not Caucasian? They did. They found it out. And part of the hardest 
I suppose, journey that they went through happened then because they did find that it was a mix up and that the embryos had been switched into two mothers and then they had to trade babies. That was so traumatic because the couple that's being, you know, that filed this lawsuit, you can imagine we're talking about a lawsuit, medical mal, negligence, et cetera. But when they finally first met their biological child, they said they didn't know her. They knew the child that that mother had carried and raised for several months as her own. And Larry, get this, talk about a, a heartbreaker. The couple had another child, a five-year-old girl at the time, yes. who had grown to love this precious little baby yes. as a little sister. She didn't care what race, what nationality, it didn't matter. It was her little sister and she fell in love with her. So the mother and the father tried to figure out, how are we going to tell our other daughter, this really isn't your little sister and we're going to have to give her away? I think they named, um, well, they finally did the swap, I understand, where they right. they got the babies right to their biological parents, got them back to where they belonged. Uh, but the uh, this couple that's doing the, the lawsuit, the baby that they got back, their biological child, I think it had been given the name Zoe, if that's how you pronounce it, Z-O-E. Right. And they decided to keep that name. Although that probably wasn't the name they would have picked out, but uh, so that's kind of precious. So I think this is, this has some positive sides to this story, and some difficult sides. And you're right. I mean, definitely uh, mal- malpractice. And I actually looked it up. There are actually attorney law firms that specialize in this type of thing, which is a very narrow area. And I was trying to get statistics on how often this happens. Probably not very often because of the. The malpractice risk, I'm sure they're extremely careful. But uh, you know what, Larry, you you, uh, you took the silver lining side of this one. Um, kudos to you. It's the first time I've heard you take that side. That's excellent. <laughs> You're stepping on my turf there. I love it. I love it. So let me tell you um, what I suppose I'll add to some of the silver lining here. When you do have lawsuits as awful, as heartbreaking, as tragic, as traumatic as something like this is, these lawsuits really serve to try to establish better guidelines uh, and ensure that the fertility industry has better regulations. The lawyers that you mentioned that work in this area, and especially, you know, when they actually discuss cases like this, will say, you know, this, there needs to be more regulations in this area. So this type of thing doesn't happen. It may not happen very often, but many mothers-to-be, talk about rendering yourself vulnerable by allowing, you know, a medical professional to perform this type of a surgery. You're trusting that you're going to get the right embryo. So how does it happen, regardless of how often is what we're asking as well. But one of the things I want to mention that really sort of brings the type of lawsuit to mind, what we're talking about, it would probably be hard to get 12 jurors that have any personal experience, thankfully, with something like this. But what really struck me from a human perspective in listening to this is that it is true that the, the parents stated when they first viewed their newborn, they said they didn't recognize her. But when they finally met their real biological child, they said, we didn't know her. Mm. Just really shedding a light on the human bonding experience, transcending genes, biolog- you know, biological DNA, all of the rest of that. And just really, that's the human experience of love. Um, and the fact that that five-year-old, uh, their five-year-old daughter had to deal with it as well. Our, our prayers for those two families moving forward is that they are able to bond with their biological children every bit as much moving forward, and especially for that the precious five-year-old as well. 
Well, Larry, let's, uh, you know, move on from one type of trauma to another, and that is the latest development in the Alec Baldwin set story. Now, um, our listeners may remember this was the tragic shooting where Alec Baldwin was acting in a movie scene and, and pulled the trigger, and lo and behold, it was a live bullet and uh, killed a colleague on the set. And ever since then, we've been looking at, we as a court of public opinion, where do we point the finger? Whose fault was it? Is it automatically negligence because Alec Baldwin was not only an actor, but was also the executive producer. Well, although we do now have a negligent negligent suits being filed against Alec Baldwin, a real wrench was thrown in the uh, analysis this week by the lawyer of the armorer and sort of in charge of the guns and the ammunition there on the set, alleging that uh, basically sabotage on the set, alleging that a live round was intentionally planted. Larry, Put your legal hat back on. I know you probably never take it off, um, even on vacation. <laughs> what do you make of this legally? Right. The attorney for the armorer, her name is Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Well, his name is Jason Bowles. And he says the death on the set of the Alec Baldwin movie, Rust, could have been murder. And there was a box of dummy rounds and the box was labeled of these dummy rounds as ammunition. Uh, it was labeled dummy. And Gutierrez uh, re- actually loaded the rounds from that box into the handgun. But she said she had no idea there was a live round in the box. Then the gun was given to assistant director David Halls, who gave the firearm to Baldwin and announced cold gun. Well, when they say cold gun on the movie set, that means it's a, you know, blanks. It's a, it's a, it's a dummy gun, so it's okay to shoot it. But there was a live round in there. And so this attorney conjectures he said somebody put a live round in that dummy round box it could have been a disgruntled employee Uh, and what was interesting is uh, just the day before a lot of the film crew walked off the job they were unhappy with the safety of the set they were unhappy they had to drive over an hour to get to a hotel room to stay they worked long hours 12 to 14 hour days and it could have been an employee. Somebody put that live round in there. And so it really brings a lot of intrigue to this whole story. It really does, Larry. But the very first thing that, you know, as a career trial attorney, I would say, you know, prove it. <laughs> you know, you can't, you could say anything. But of course, lawyers are held to higher standards. And obviously, we can't just say anything. We do have to prove it up and we have to prove it in court. And we can't file frivolous lawsuits. But that was the very first thing that crossed my mind is upon what evidence is this allegation made? You have to believe I'm going to give the lawyer, obviously, he's an officer of the court and, and obviously lawyers have to tell the truth that there's something that that's based on. Larry, when do you suppose we're going to learn what that is? What evidence that he intends to present in court or at least to substantiate this very sensational claim? I would imagine it's probably going to wait until the actual uh, civil suit that's been filed. Now, what was interesting, the person that filed this civil suit was, I believe he worked the lighting aspect. It wasn't even like the parents of the young lady that was, was unfortunately killed. And, but I think there's going to be more lawsuits to come. And, but I do think as far as we're going to have to wait and see how this develops. I mean, we're finding new things every week on this case, but it shouldn't been happen. It was like negligence for sure. And possibly more. Yeah. You know, Larry, the one interesting thing, um, you know, maybe interesting isn't the right word. Um, one of the tragic uh, aspects of this case is exactly was it exemplified in the lawsuit filed this week 
by a coworker, having to witness that trauma firsthand. So there's that aspect of it as well. We're going to continue to follow this one because twists and turns. I mean, this plot is thickening, as they say on movie sets, um, almost daily. But you do not want to miss our second half. We have a blockbuster second half, if you will. Lots of great stories coming up. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. We will be back in a flash. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. Well, we started off talking about two very serious cases. Um, We're going to continue that trend only because it is so relevant. We're going to be talking about the danger of a crowd. Now, we've heard lots of different ways in which this has become a saying. Three is a crowd, security in a crowd, safety in numbers, however you want to say it. It's not always safety in numbers. Sometimes crowds mean unsafety in numbers, and that was on display, sadly, tragically, in a deadly fashion at the Travis Scott concert recently. You remember the headlines? This is the concert where a crowd rushed the stage. It was what we call a crowd surge, and it did turn deadly. And it took an enormous amount of time, a prolonged amount of time for the concert to actually be halted. But by that time, there were several people who had been killed and many more had been injured. Now, you know, we we ended the segment talking about a negligence claim being made against Alec Baldwin for what went on the the homicide um, on the set of Rust. I say I said homicide, not murder. Boy, that would be a whole conversation for another day. But the Travis Scott concert, people are also talking about negligence. They're talking about whether or not a concert with a performer who has, he would never say that he has encouraged violence, but he has encouraged, um, some people are are saying unsafe behavior. The concerts are known for being raucous and rowdy, and they talk about something called raging. And there's really been a lot of opinions shouting out different ways in which this kind of incitement might have meant that death was foreseeable. But how? And Larry, I'd love your take on this as well, because we, by the way, I'm using all of these hypos to to teach my torts class at night, my law school class that I teach, teach criminal law also. Nice. But you can't make this stuff up. They say truth is stranger than fiction. So um, this has been another very interesting analysis for my students trying to figure out, well, should somebody have known that this type of danger was foreseeable, given the nature of what goes on at these concerts? I think so. There's... Uh, there were estimated to be 50,000 people at that concert. And this uh, gentleman, Travis Scott, you know his real name? Jacques Berman Webster II. He changed it wow, to Travis Scott. Difference. It's easy yeah. to remember Travis Scott. But he has a, uh, a history of being a little bit on the wild side and encouraging kind of really edgy behavior. That night, he said, who want to rage? You know, with his microphone blasting out to all 50,000 people. And, uh, he, you know, he, he was just looking almost for, for trouble, in my opinion. And then when those people 
started to move in and people started to drop out. They were being um, suffocated. And uh, it was when he saw the, uh, I think he heard an ambulance and he stopped the concert for a couple seconds and then he continued on and people were still pushing and shoving and by people just dropping down, basically passed out and unfortunately cardiac arrest uh mm. he should have totally stopped the concert at that point they announced uh at some point in the concert this is a mass casualty event and eventually they they did stop the concert but you know in that crowd uh, a 14 year old a 16 year old two 21 year olds two 23 year olds a 27 year old and a, a a last person i they don't know his age died they were they actually will not come back just because they went to the concert. And uh, there's so many dangers in concerts these days, besides even the worry, we'll talk about this maybe another time, uh, about COVID and, you know, just getting a disease. But there was another interesting thing going on in that uh, concert. One of the security guards claims he was pricked in the neck with a needle. And uh, Mm -hmm. this, uh, he was knocked out. They revived him with Narcan. And I guess that would be fentanyl, perhaps, uh, he was injected with. But, it was not only him. They did it to a little child. And so who would do that? I mean, that is like evil behavior. And you have to worry about those kind of things when you're squished in, for lack of a better word, with 50,000 other people that you don't even know. You know, Larry, I, we should devote uh, really a segment to this. I know you love going to concerts. I do, too. Yes. This concert, you had eight people killed, 300 injured. You had people being pricked with needles. Um, and you're right about the security guard and the Narcan. I mean, where have we gone as a you know society? People ask that question. Really, though, obviously, most people at that concert did not go there with the intent to be injured or injure anyone else. But this crowd surge, yes. you know, it would be we should we will. And, and, you know, we talk about threat assessment and safety and safety in crowds. That's one of the things in retrospect that professionals are looking at. Security professionals are analyzing the layout of the stadium. I mean, where are the pressure points? What is the communication like? You know, how quickly should the communication of people, as you mentioned, passing out, dropping dead, being trampled? How quickly was that communication made to somebody at the stage to be able to stop the concert? You know, it used to be we were talking about almost tongue in cheek, this kind of behavior around Black Friday, where they start airing the footage of people racing into stores when they open. In reality, there are very real things you consider. You look at lining up a line that's not right next to the glass on the store so people from the back of the line can't literally shove the people at the front of the line through the glass. You talk about other ways in which you as a lottery system, you let only so many people into the store at once. I mean, there are so many different security measures that should always be taken before these massive events, as you're mentioning now. And as the days go by, we're learning what was and wasn't done at this particular stadium. And you can bet other stadiums and other public venues everywhere around the world are looking at this and taking notice. We continue to learn from each other, but if events like this continue to happen, I guess that means we still have more to learn. Exactly. And Travis Scott, this wasn't his first time. He's been arrested. The performer has been arrested twice before, and uh, both of them related to crowd control, where he's urging the crowd to do dangerous things like go over the barriers. And I Mm. think that happened uh, at a in 2015 at a La Palooza right. performance, mm-hmm. and then it happened again uh, in 2017 in uh, Rogers, Arkansas. And uh, basically, in, you could say inciting a riot. I don't know if the, that's too strong of a term, inciting a riot. It's, that's very dangerous when people are in an enclosed space, for sure. Yes. And, you know, both of those cases did. I mean, Mr. Scott pled guilty to misdemeanor reckless conduct. And, you know, he's paid for the funerals of these people that have died. And 
really disavows the notion that there was anything that he did that he was trying to incite violence. But you know, then you know you can argue the other side of that as well. And sadly, we probably will be following this case to see eventually how it shakes out, especially in terms of the respective levels of liability, the performer, the promoters, if Mr. Scott was also involved in the promotion, like like many performers are, um, the venue, everything else. And then, of course, following up on who in the world came into that venue with a syringe yes. and engaged in that behavior. But uh, they were also worried about COVID, Larry. Yep. And I know that, you know, as, a, as an avid concert goer yourself, you keep close attention and close tabs on the ways in which Vaccine mandates, negative tests, et cetera, are being enforced at concert venues, for example. Exactly. Yeah, 100% I do. And I don't know if you want to go into this next topic here. We're going to be talking about um, vaccine, uh, vaccinating kids. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting uh, because you could, yeah, we're talking about vaccines to get into concerts. We're talking about vaccines to keep jobs. And I, I really think Part of this vaccine mandate thing is basically causing our economic problems. It's causing the problems of the unloading of the ships. I mean, you can claim that the chip maker in Malaysia who makes the computer chips that go in the cars, they had to close down their factory because everybody over Malaysia has the, you know, the COVID. But you can't blame uh, the fact that there's ships out there off of Long Beach and other ports that are just sitting there. How are you going to explain that? But anyhow, I wanted to jump into this thing about uh, there's a song back in 1967 by a group called Buffalo Springfield. It's called For What It's Worth. And uh, I just wanted to read just a couple of the lyrics to see if you think this applies. You're going to have to sing it, Larry. Yeah. Can you sing it? No, I can't. But it says there's, there's something <laughs> happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I've got to beware. Paranoia strikes deep into your life. It will creep. Sound familiar? It starts when you're always afraid. Step out of line and the man comes and takes you away. We better stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Well, I want to transition over to the FDA approves vaccinations for kids. They did that on October 29th uh, from five. That's five years old to 11. Now, the CDC, this is really interesting, folks, from March 1st to September 19th. That's almost seven months. There's only 20 kids in the entire United States that perished because of COVID, and the CDC doesn't even list if they had comorbidities. So we don't know. They probably had comorbidities because kids basically don't die of COVID, yet they want to vaccinate them. Check this out. Bill Gates, in a recent tweet interview, I watched the whole interview, admitted COVID vaccines do not block transmission of COVID-19. He said, we got to get back to the research labs and develop one that will work. Yet they're pushing this on all of us, even our kids. And uh, it just goes on and on uh, with what was going on. But I want to get to the real bottom line of this before we run out of time. Here's the question. Can the government, this is, this is interesting, can the government forcibly require you to get vaccinated in the United States? And the reality is, no, they can't force that. Not in the United States, not yet. Maybe in communist China, but not in the U.S. But what they can do, unfortunately, is implement these mandates, which basically blocks you out of society. They could put you in quarantine. They could say you can't go to the the concerts, you can't fly on a plane. So they do have the authority of mandates. I think this is eventually going to resolve in the U.S. Supreme Court. Please, Supreme Court, take this case and please come out on the right side of freedom because <laughs> this is affecting so many people. It's hurting so many people. 
Yeah, you know, um, we will continue to follow the science on both sides of this. And as the years pass, that means that more tests will be done. You speak about vaccinating kids. There's been some very high profile celebrities who have come out in recent days um, against the idea that they're going to give their kids what they describe as an experimental vaccine. But they didn't come out and say that they would never consider it after, in their opinion, enough testing has been done to of make course. sure that it is safe. I agree. Especially because you're talking about kids who, as you mentioned, have a, a much lower rate. Um, some kids have died of COVID, but certainly not at the rates of adults, especially immunocompromised adults. But um, I mean, just we can only scratch the surface of these topics each week, folks, because there's just so much to talk about. So thank you for joining us again this week. Rest assured, we're going to have a great show for you next week. We want to wish all of you a wonderful, safe weekend. Please join us next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with the Silver Lining. Have a great week, everyone, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.